Pastor Jad was praying about the Word as he was just praying. And think about it. I hope you read it on a regular basis on your own. And uh, we're going to obviously open it here in a minute. But as you read it, do you ever come across passages? Sometimes you come across passages and they're inspiring. Uh, they move you to do something, maybe move you to worship or move you to go and take action in some way. Or sometimes you read passages and they're refreshing. Uh, it's almost like, you know, you were in a dry spot and you took a drink in the desert. And then sometimes you read passages of Scripture and they cause you to think, is that really in there? <laughs> is God really like that? Is that really true? And you start reflecting on passages of Scripture like that. And they're the ones that you can cause you to keep going back to them over and over again. And there's a passage of Scripture that's been like that in my life recently. It's in Matthew chapter 25. And, and you know, you read a passage, sometimes you read it, and you've read it a bunch of times, but then something sticks out. And I don't know if it's my stage of life. I turn 39 next month, so I'm coming up on 40, which is old now, I guess. Some people laugh. Some people say, hey, yeah, they're calming me down. Somebody clapped last service that I was going to turn 40, like it was a milestone, or like I made it or something. And uh, I remember when I, when I think when I was about 20, 40 seemed old. Now, my perspective's starting to change. And once I'm at 41, I'm sure it'll be like, oh, there's young people at 40. But uh, I'm at a place where probably, I don't know how long I'll live, uh, I might be 41, uh, I might be 80, uh, but I'm somewhere close to the halfway point, I would guess. Maybe that's why. But the Matthew chapter 25 passage is a parable of the talents. And I don't know if you know that passage or not, but what ends up happening is a master uh, entrusts some of his servants, three of them that he mentions in the passage, with different amounts of talents. Talents are large sums of money. He gives one five, he gives one two, one one. And uh, then he leaves and he goes away for a long time. And then he comes back and he calls them to an account. Two of them have been faithful and they've multiplied what they have. They produced something and one of them has not been faithful. All he did was he held on to what he had. And I know the passage is about money. But as I've been reflecting on it, thinking about it, I've been asking myself, with everything that you've entrusted to me, God, with my family, with my life experiences, with my training, with my talents, with everything that you've given me, am I making the most of it? Am I making a difference? Is it making a difference for eternity? You know, am I using that for something that counts? I don't know if you ever ask yourself that kind of question. I hope you do. It's a good question to ask periodically. Does your life matter? Are you making any kind of difference? Does it matter not just for like comfort levels here or making things go better here, but does it matter for eternity? Is it actually going to make a long-term difference? And the passage that we're talking about in Scripture today, in Matthew chapter 28, tells us how to actually use our lives in a way that make a difference for eternity. Not just here now, not just to make your life better during this little vapor that we have called this life, but how to make a difference for eternity. And if you have a, your Bibles, we're going to open up God's Word today, back to Matthew chapter 28, where we've been the last several weeks. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, very last chapter of that book, Matthew chapter 28, looking at verses 16 through 20. We've been looking at the same five verses for the last couple of weeks. The first week, we really focused in on the promise that drives a life-changing church. And the promise was that Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. And so then he has this authority, this power, not just on earth, but in all of creation. He's got all the authority so he can command us to do stuff, but he can also enable us to do those things. It says, therefore, that hinge word, because I have all this authority, go, and then he gives us the command, make disciples of all nations. It's the only command in the passage. And so last week we talked about the command that drives a life-changing church. And the, the only point last week was, if we are disciples, we love making disciples. And we really spent most of our time talking about what it looks like to be a disciple. And we're talking about being a follower of Jesus Christ, under the authority of Christ, living a life that exemplifies Jesus and baptized. And for some people, it was a time to reflect on whether or not you really are a follower of Jesus. We had one woman pray to receive Christ last week. It was amazing. Some people, that, that was their step of faith. Today, I'm really talking to people who already are disciples about how to make disciples. 
Not just the command that we're told to do it, but how do we actually do that? And so if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, today's message isn't really for you. You take that step of faith of trusting Christ as your step. But for the rest of us, it's how do we use our lives in a way that makes a difference for eternity? And we're going to talk real practically about how to do that today. Back in this passage, the context being the whole book of Matthew, the miraculous birth of Jesus, the temptations, uh, his baptism, his teaching, and all the ministry that he had, all the miracles that he did, his betrayal by one of his own disciples, his being uh, rejected by the chief priests, the teachers, the elders, being murdered, which is the worst sin that's ever taken place. And God uses it for the greatest good. I was talking with a friend this week about how it's oftentimes inappropriate to, to quote a passage of scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for God works all things together for good to those who love him when people are in those terrible moments. And he was telling me about how he was in a low point in his life, and someone quoted that verse into him, and it seemed like that's impossible. And now he can look back on it and see that's exactly what God does, that God is so good, he even takes our worst stuff and uses it for good. And he takes the worst moment in human history, the murder of his son, killing of God, and he uses it for our greatest good, your salvation, my salvation. He raises from the dead. He appears to his disciples, perhaps at this point, about 10 times he's appeared to different people. And try and imagine being on this mountaintop after your friend's been killed and you've seen that he's raised from the dead and he tells you to meet him at this mountain and then you're there and it says, then the 11 disciples went, verse 16. They went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And so their worship was mixed with this doubt. And then Jesus came to them, and in the midst of their doubt, he gives them this promise. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. Some people say the Trinity is not in the Bible. It's right here. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then another promise. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, throughout all ages. We've talked about the structure of this passage. Those first two verses, verses 16 and 17, really give us the context. They're on this mountain. There's worship and doubt. And then there's two promises that, that were kind of sandwich the command that's there. First promise, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then the last promise, and lo, I'm with you always, and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. And we'll talk about that one next week. And in the middle is that command. There's only one command. And the command is not to go, the command is not to teach, the command is not to baptize, the command is to make disciples of all nations. But how you do that are those three participles. Go, it's not an I-N-G word in English, but it's going. It could be translated while you're going or as you're going. Baptizing and teaching. Those are going to be our three points today. They come right from the passage of Scripture. And we want to use our lives to make a difference for eternity. Here's how we do it. We must go. And we must baptize and we must teach, if you want the outline ahead of time. We must be going people. We must go. Now, I just told you that it's not the command, but then I, I realized how I phrased this. Now, we get into some the technical structuring of the passage, and most scholars will argue that while this is a participle, it carries some command force, some imperatival force, the going, the teaching, and the baptizing, because they're so attached to the making of disciples. But the command is not to doing those things. These are how you fulfill the command. By going, by teaching, by baptizing, that's how you make disciples. So too much and too little has been made of the fact that going is just a participle. Too much is made of it when we ignore the fact that this command is actually to all the nations. And so by nature of that, 
some of us have to leave here and go to a foreign land because it's, we don't have a message that's just an American message. It's not just for our cultural message. It's not just for, you know, middle-class suburbia that we're in here in Briar Creek. It is for all people throughout all time, and it's all that he's commanded. It's because he's got all the authority, therefore, go. But too much is made of the fact that it's a, a, an all-nations deal when we make it like go is the command. And so if you've ever been to a missions conference, you've perhaps heard it stressed this way, or if you've ever been on a mission Sunday, and what ends up happening with that, and I don't think the speaker ever intends that, but what ends up happening is implied that if you don't go to some foreign land, that somehow you're disobedient, or at the very least you're like on the JV Christian team. Okay, so like every foreign missionary is doing calculus and you're in the remedial class coloring elephants is kind of what the idea is. So you can't like fully obey this command unless you go to China. Too bad for the people that were born in China, right? Where do they go to America? And then the people, everybody's got to leave and just go somewhere. That's not what's being said here. But there is a force here to which we're constantly taking and intentionally taking the message of Jesus out, regardless of whether we stay here in Raleigh, Durham, or whether we go to China or wherever else, Bangladesh, India, the Middle East, wherever you go, that you're taking the message as you're going, while you're going continually. Think about the message in and of itself. The most famous verse probably in the Bible. If you watched football yesterday, you may have seen someone hold this up behind a field goal post. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or his only begotten, depending on your translation, that whoever, his one and only son, that whoever or whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we read that and we go over it real quick. And so God gave his son. What does that mean he gave his son? Verse 17. For God did not send, he sent his son from heaven to earth. The very message in and of itself is a missionary message. The gospel in and of itself is a sending, a going message that we take the message of Jesus Christ, the good news that we call gospel, we take the good news of Jesus Christ to people. We don't wait for them to come to us. Jesus prays about that in John chapter 17, verse 18. He's praying for you, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for the people who will follow And he says to his father, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. A few chapters later, John chapter 20, verse 21, after Jesus has been murdered and his disciples are cowering in a room, he appears to them and he says, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you. How did the father send him? To seek and save that which was lost, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. To come and give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve and to die He came bringing the message. He was the message. Then he sends us out to fulfill his mission, to continue on with the mission, to take that message to other people. And so then we have to be going. But we can stay here and still be going. How does that happen? What does it mean to go? Let me tell you, very basically it means this. We have to be intentional while taking the message. It doesn't just happen. A lot of times as churches we act like we just want lost people to show up at our place. And so they'll come to us. That is not going. And it does happen. We realize there are people that come to church they don't know Jesus. I mentioned a lady trusted Christ last week. Uh, we've got people that come here that are, I've had conversations with them and they, they're clear that they don't believe the stuff that we're talking about. That's great. A million lost people aren't going to just show up at church all of a sudden one Sunday. The way it happens is that believers in Jesus Christ, you, me, we go intentionally with the gospel. They're not waiting for us to come to them, by the way, either. The world continues to move on. Things continue to happen. So no one, and just so you know, no one's waiting for you to learn enough about Jesus so you can answer every question. Not waiting for your kids to grow up so you can get to more stage of life so we have more time. Not waiting for you to become holy enough. Not waiting for, the world will continue to go. They're not coming to us. They will continue to move on. 
We are to go to them. It's a sent message. With that in mind, why wouldn't we go all over the world? Did you know that there are over 6,000? I read this this week. Um, you can look it up. I put it in the small group study this week. On joshuaproject.com, you can look it up. There are over 6,000 people groups in the world that are called unreached people groups. And so we say, it says here in this passage, take, make disciples of all nations. Nations here doesn't mean nations like the United Nations would you know, divide people up. It's, all, it's ethnos. It's all the ethnic groups, all the different tribes and tongues and languages and subcultures. And so there are over 6,000 people groups. Some of those groups include millions of people. Over 6,000 people groups in Japan and in China and Bangladesh and, and all over the world, some in America, by the way, they don't have enough of an evangelical presence in them to evangelize themselves. They don't have the resources, don't have enough people that, are, that know Jesus. Some of them have zero people that know Jesus Christ. Some have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Think about that in our world with our technology and our resources. Now, we have the resources of the book of Acts. We've got the Holy Spirit. We also have YouTube. Like We've got all kinds of resources. And there are people on this globe that have never heard of Jesus Christ. Put that together with the fact that we'll, we just sang songs about how Jesus has redeemed us, Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is our rock. And the people who are professing that are saying that we have a life-changing message that washed us clean of our sin, that made us new, that gives us new life, that we're forgiven, that we're reconciled to our Creator and our Redeemer, and we know that message, and we are then sent with that message. How do we reconcile the fact that we know now, because you know it because you've heard me just say it, that there are 6,000 people, groups, millions and millions of people, that are unreached, and you have the message, and you stay here. And so everyone's not supposed to go, but let me ask you this question. Why wouldn't you go? Why wouldn't you go and take that message to them? And I hope it's a good answer. So when your master calls you to account, you have a good answer. And there are good an- there's some bad answers. Bad answer would be, I'm too busy. <laughs> Get busy doing what I told you to do. There's bad answers like, someone else will do it. So we're banking on someone else's obedience to fulfill this command for us. If you're banking on someone else to do it, I hope that after the service you'll walk up to them and say, I'm, I'm banking on you doing that for me. Okay? Would you do that? I hope you have the boldness to say that to someone today. That'd be awesome. I want to hear how the conversation goes after that too. A lot of us, if we really reflect, we examine our hearts. You know, Psalm 139, search my heart, God. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. And so you ask God to search your heart and show you things in your life. A lot of us, if we were honest, the reason why we don't go is because we're pursuing a different command. We're pursuing a different promise. It's called the American dream. I wish the American dream would be labeled more accurately. It's called the great deceit for Christians. Because think about what happens. We go after whatever we're looking for. We work hard and we get a nice family and we picket fence. You know, it used to be said a dog and two kids or two and a half kids or whatever it is. I don't know how you have two and a half kids. That's the stat. And uh, maybe now it's, you know, we get a bigger wall uh, fence around your house so you're safe and you have enough money for security and for comfort and some of those types of deals. And maybe you buy a boat or whatever it is or work really hard so you can have a nice lawn. <laughs> like, what do we spend our time on? What are we working so hard for? And we save enough money for our 401k so that at the end of our life we don't have to work. We, we can watch... The waves come in or sit on a boat or play golf every day, every other day. Whatever the dream is for you, you can insert different pieces to the dream. But you know what's consistently true about the American dream? It's all about here and now. It makes no difference for eternity. So we work really hard so that at the end of our life we don't have to do anything. 
Or if we looked at it from a biblical perspective, would it be we work really hard so that at the end of our life, we have nothing to show for it eternally because it's all going to be gone here because it was all about here. So is it the American dream or is it the great deceit? I feel like it's a diabolical plan by the enemy for American Christians so that we waste our lives. And so if your reason for staying here is because of the American dream, that is a terrible reason. How do we reconcile that our 6,000 people groups and we have a message that would change a generation upon a generation upon a generation of their people? And we stay here. Let me tell you a good answer. A good reason is because we're called here. How hypocritical it would be if I were to tell you, uh, you have to go or you're disobedient. And I'm, stand, I'm not standing in China preaching that message to you. I'm not in the middle of India. I'm not in some tribe somewhere that's never heard of Jesus. And I'm telecasting back to you. I'm standing here. I live, do you, are you called here? Because we actually live in a global area. It's very possible that you could share the gospel with multiple nations, probably in your neighborhood. Think about South America, maybe, um, perhaps India, perhaps uh, China. Think of who are the people in your neighborhood that you could reach. But we've got to be intentional. They're not just going to show up at your door. Could you tell me the life-changing message of Jesus? People who show up at your door to talk about Jesus are usually talking about some wacky stuff. We have to go to them as we're living our lives, as we're working at IBM, as we're running our law firm, as we're practicing medicine, as we're raising our kids, as we're going to soccer games, as people are going through difficulties of life, and as people are experiencing victories of life, as we're living, we're continually going, but we have to be intentional with the message that we have. That's how we stay here and still go. And for some of us, what will happen is as we're doing that, we'll get a burden for foreign missions. We get a burden for something else that's happening somewhere else, like the Heads Fest. We talk about the Heads Fest sometimes. It, what ended up happening for them is they actually went, they were wanting to adopt children themselves. And then God grew their vision as they saw a problem. And then they go to Panama. And for those of you who don't know who the Heads Fest are, they used to uh, be lay leaders here in our church. And now they're out on the mission field building a, an orphanage in Panama for the first special needs orphanage there and working with laws to try and get people adopted. But it wasn't because they just thought, oh, where's the map? Where do you want us to go? Boom, okay, Panama. No, God, as they were going, as they were living the Christian life, as they were making disciples, as they were trying to lead people to Jesus here in Raleigh, and as God was working their life, God moved them to that place. For different people, it's different things. For some of us, it'll be foreign missions. I was reading uh, this week, Jim Elliott uh, wrote some, a letter to his parents when he felt called to go to South America. For those of you who don't know Jim Elliott, he's a famous missionary. Um, who ended up being martyred for his faith. I'll tell you the rest of his story. But let me read you some of what he wrote to um, his parents. After talking about Jesus, saying um, throughout the Gospels that oftentimes uh, the, the Gospel will end up causing difficulties in families because of things like this. He says, remember how the psalmist described children? He said they were as a heritage from the Lord. And that every man should be happy who has his quiver full of them. Then he asked the question, and what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. How many parents have that view of their kids? Pour out thy soul for them in prayer, victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Great confidence that the reward is greater than any cost that would take place here. Those of you who don't know Jim Elliott's story, he goes to 
South America, he ends up meeting a woman, Elizabeth Elliot. They get married. They have a child. It's 10 months old at the time when he goes to try and reach the Aka Indians. He had re- reached out to other tribes and had ministry with other tribes prior to this. Spent a couple of years of their lives, and then they start reaching out to the Aka Indians. The Aka Indians were known as savages, as warriors. And uh, no one had made contact with them before, and so they started making contact from an, a, um, an airplane that Nate Saint was flying, another missionary. And there were uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and three other guys that were with them, and they decided they were going to make physical contact with these um, people, and they did, and it was successful at first. And they decided they were going to try and have a ministry there and go to them, and when they decided they were finally going to do that, these warriors came out and they murdered them. And the headlines back in America read, what a waste. They wasted their lives from the perspective of this place. But did they waste their lives? Because time tells us that hundreds, if not thousands of missionaries have been inspired to go on the mission field as a result of their martyrdom. And then what happens a couple years later is that Nate Saint's wife and Elizabeth Elliot, they both go back to these people. Show them forgiveness, show them grace, teach them the scriptures, and lead multiple of the Auk Indians to Christ. It's like we oftentimes hear, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so they give their lives, whether they waste their lives. That's the question. Or the people that are wasting their lives, spending all their time so they can have a nice lawn. At the end, whose life matters? And does yours? Do we willing to take, like Jim Elliott did, the the idea of going seriously. And maybe it means we stay here and we go. I'll tell you about the heads best. So there's people that are here. They go, this week I was on the uh, property. There's a new property for Hope Reigns, a ministry that we partner with here at the church. It was started by um, Kim Charette, a woman who's a member of our church. And there's about, I think, 30 or 40 of you that volunteer out there. And you know how it started? There was a woman, and as she was going, she ended up realizing you take the passion that she has in her life and the burden she has in her life, a burden for kids that are hurting because of her own story, passion for horses because of her own story and how God used them in her life. To start a ministry to connect kids to Jesus Christ so their lives can be changed by using these horses, by using her gifts and her abilities and her passions. And then multiple other people then come use their gifts and their passions and they're making disciples here, but they're being intentional about taking the message. There's a student in our church, an elementary school kid that I talked to last week that's been inviting a neighbor to come to church. And the neighbor can't come to church, obviously, young age. And then so this kid has been taking CDs of the messages and the kid doesn't understand the messages. And then uh, that's not working. And so what the, the student has decided to do, elementary school student, is start a Bible study at the house of their friend to then share the gospel with them. It's an elementary school kid that's here living in Raleigh. Now, hasn't moved to China, but is going with the message of the gospel of Christ. What about you? Why would you stay? There's a good reason. But is that your reason? That as we're going, then we would take the message. Why would we take the message? Why would we do this? This can mean great cost. It can mean great sacrifice. It can cost relationships. People will think differently about you. It can mean lots of things. It can cost you lots of money. It can do lots of things to your life. Why would we do this? Well, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He commands it. That's a reason. That, that's, that, that, I could pump you up about that. I could make you feel guilty about that. And we'd go out and we might go on a short-term mission trip or something. But what's a lasting reason to do this? That should be enough, but oftentimes it is not for many of us. It's not enough just to know that there's 6,000 people groups out there that if God were to come back today, they'd be separated from him for eternity. Do you know what a lasting motive is? It's out of our love for Jesus. It's the fulfillment of this mission that ushers in his coming. I'll read you a verse we don't read very often. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 says this. 
before the Great Commission is given, he talks about the fulfillment of it. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all ethnic groups. And then the end will come. I challenge you in your own study, how many times does that phrase get said, and then the end will come? See, it's when he fulfills his mission. He tells us in Second Peter chapter 3, what's holding off him coming back? He promised you, the master left, and he told us he's coming back, but he's slow to come back. He's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance as we go and we take the message to them. And so what's the motive? Maybe when you lead one of those people to Christ, then you get to see Jesus face to face. The motive is a love for him, that you might get to see him. So then, you can, then it makes new sense to parables like Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, when there's a guy who at great cost has great joy. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field because what you find in the kingdom of God is better than what you've been pursuing your whole life. And so when he finds this treasure hidden in the field, he, with his joy, is willing to give up everything in this life to get that treasure. How can he have joy? Because he realizes what he's getting is so much better, kind of like Jim Elliot was talking about. Jamelia's the one who's famously said, he is no fool, gives up what he cannot keep, your life. It's going to be gone. It's, it's just a vapor to gain what you cannot lose. Rewards in heaven, which are the lives that have been changed forever. And so then we go out of love, and then when we are actually so in love with Jesus, that we would live and spend our lives like that, we don't, not only do we not waste our lives, you can't stop us from talking about Jesus. You don't need me to pump you up and motivate you and push you out there and make you feel guiltier, you know, give you inspiration. You just out of love are doing it. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. I'm under compulsion. I can't boast about it. I must do it. I'm under compulsion to preach the gospel. Damned be me if I do not. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Because we talk about what we love, don't we? I can't see a lot of people today because of the lights. I see my friend Vanessa here. She's got her Arizona Cardinals jersey on. She loves her team. There's somebody after the first service. ECU shirts today. I don't see ECU shirts every week. Your team wins, you talk about what you love. People talk about what they love. Go to social media and uh, find a, a woman, a mom who gets pregnant, and then all of a sudden, how often do you see women posting pictures of their bellies on social media? All of a sudden, a woman gets pregnant and the belly pictures are gonna fly. I'm just telling you, month by month. Look at it growing. Look at my belly getting bigger. How many times in your life have you heard a woman say, watch my belly get bigger? It's because we talk about what we love. They're falling in love with that child. That's what they can see of that child. So I have some friends get engaged this week. So guess what? Pictures. Ah, ring, picture. We talk about what we love. That's good news. We talk about it. You find an ice cream place you like after church today. You may come up to me and you should go to this ice cream place. So we naturally then talk about what we love. What about the creator and redeemer of our souls reconciling us in a relationship that was broken, that we were headed for destruction, but now we're headed for true life. We'd naturally talk about that when we're in love with him. So we go. It's a natural thing as we're going, as we're living our lives. And what else do we do? We baptize, he tells us here, which seems like an odd one. It's natural to go. Baptizing is kind of a unique thing. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And the first thing he says to do after, as you're making disciples is baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so baptize, so we must go, we must baptize. What does it mean to baptize? 
To baptize, we use that word in normal language. You'll hear people use it in the marketplace and they'll say, I was baptized by fire. And they mean they were thrown into an experience and they learned through their experiences. In church worlds, we know, if you've heard it used before, is that people get wet. There's baptism and then people get wet. And sprinkling might be the way or might be dunking people underwater, but we know that there's water involved. And the word itself just simply means to dip, to dunk, to immerse. But in the context, because context always actually gives you meanings of words. And so you think about how different words are used, and you can use it in one context and mean one thing, and use it in another context and mean something totally different. The context gives us the meaning. You look at the context of the New Testament, what you see for baptism is that baptism is not just to dunk somebody in water, although we do see that. But it's actually done when someone is saying they identify with the message of the one that's dunking them in the water. And so take Jesus, for example. When Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, what's John the Baptist's message? It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's repent because the Messiah is coming. Jesus is the Messiah. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. He's saying, I identify with the message this guy's preaching. Some people have said that you could talk about baptism this way. It's a public identification with a new association. It's a declaring that I'm going to live a new life now. And baptism is probably one of the most symbolic things that we have in all of Christianity. Because it's the picture of the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're identifying with that message. And this passage says to identify, to be baptized in or into the name of the one true God. The Father who sent the Son, the Son who died, the Spirit who seals that salvation for you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of what's taken place internally in our lives already. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That we've been cleansed of our sins. And then we're raised to walk in a new way of life. I love what Paul says when he writes to the Romans. Roman believers are people he didn't even know. He had never physically visited the Romans. But based on this command in Matthew chapter 28, he makes an assumption that the Romans, if they're believers in Jesus Christ, they will have been baptized. And so he writes to them and says in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This verse is why sometimes you'll hear me say when we're wrapping up a baptismal service, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new way of life. That's part of the symbolism. You're identifying with that. This verse is the reason. There's lots of reasons. We see the example of it throughout scripture. It's the meaning of the word. But this is the reason why when we baptize, we baptize by immersion. And we actually dunk people fully underwater because it's the best picture of the message you're identifying with. That Jesus Christ was buried in the grave. And after three days, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And he gives new life. And so we say that we're buried to that old way of life. We were going our old way. We were under our own authority. We were doing that. Then we turned to Jesus Christ. And so we're burying that old way of life. We're raising to walk in a new way of life under the authority, under the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the picture. And it's rich in imagery. That's what we see throughout the New Testament is that someone places their faith in Jesus and then after that gets baptized. See, in Acts chapter 2, just when the book of Acts starts, so after this commission is given, then you see people living it out and making disciples. It's the first thing that happens. People feel guilty of their sin as Peter's preaching, and he's telling them, you killed Jesus. It was your sin that nailed him to the cross. They say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people being baptized in one day. Try and imagine that. Think about how long it takes us to baptize like 10 people. 
3,000, they were there for a long time. And how many people were baptizing? I don't think it was just Peter. I don't think it was just the 12. They had added to their number. There were 12 of them. Now they said that there was 120 of them in the upper room. The scripture doesn't say this, but I imagine all 120 of them are baptizing people, and it still took a while. How much water? Do they have hair dryers? Did anybody have makeup for the ladies afterwards? What was that like? 3,000 people getting baptized in one day? Why? Because they identified with this message. Now they wanted to let everyone else know. I had somebody say here one time when they got baptized, it's like, I'm on the team already. Now I want to put on the jersey. I want everybody to know. I want to declare it to the world. That's what baptism is. So you don't have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian, in the Bible it's assumed you will be baptized. You see it throughout. You get this Acts chapter 2 passage. Acts chapter 8, what happens? There's a eunuch that's reading a passage of scripture from Isaiah that's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And he can't understand it. And so Philip comes along and he explains it to him. He explains to him, you know, your sins, they're, they're like scarlet. They're like, they're, they're, you're terrible. You're, no, the best you can do is like a pile of dirty rags. But this guy, he was crushed for your iniquities. Abused and rejected and died for your sins. And he realizes that what he's talking about is Jesus. And he places his faith in Jesus. And then afterwards, as they travel along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Please, and then he's baptized. It happens even with Paul, who's called Saul in Acts chapter 9. And before he starts his public ministry, he's baptized. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. You've got to read the whole story to understand that. And he could see again, and he got up, and he was baptized. Interesting note, both Jesus and Paul are baptized before they start their public ministry. And here it's Giffen, like the first step of obedience. You can continue to read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, seeing people get baptized throughout the book. They believe, and then they're baptized. They're identifying with this message of Jesus. Now, some of the passages in Acts say, and this person and their whole household were baptized. And then some people will argue, well, see, then that babies get baptized. And so baby being baptized, that should happen. The New Testament just doesn't talk about that. We don't know. We're assuming that there were infants in that family. We don't, there might have been. There might not have been. We just don't know. We'll have to speculate. And the reason why we talk about that is because church history has said that that would be true. And, and even the reformers, when they broke from the Catholic church, continued to baptize infants for a while until the rebaptizers came, those who said that, no, you have to be baptized as a believer. And many of them were then killed by both Catholics and Protestants for saying that message. It's a big deal. I realize it's incredibly personal to talk about this. If you were baptized as a baby, you probably had really good parents that were doing what their church told them to do. They were continuing on a tradition that continued from the church. But the New Testament model that we see is that believers are baptized. And I would just challenge you as a child, were you a believer? Because what you see when you look at the context of the word baptism is that how can you make a public identification with a new association when you're not able to make those decisions? You couldn't have been a believer. You hadn't placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And what we see in the New Testament is the pattern is believers' baptism. So if you were baptized as a child, I would urge you to be baptized again if you're a believer in jesus and i know there's some of you here who this is true and you haven't been baptized yet get baptized that's the first step of obedience it's a one-time decision though the thing that we talk about next is a lifelong process this is you get baptized once and then you're baptized but then what the command here is is then not just to be baptized but then to baptize people and this commission the great commission is not given just to pastors so I want to say something that might be unique to some of you for our church is this. You can baptize people. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, and you're making disciples, you're to baptize those people. And so you've perhaps seen 
When we baptize people, sometimes a dad will come out and baptize their kid. Do you know why we do that? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says that fathers, specifically the father, fathers, not parents, not nannies, not the church, fathers, disciple your children. You're going to be held accountable. When your master comes back, he's going to say, what would you do with these kids? And so you're the disciple maker of these kids. And so as you're making them as disciples, you baptize them. And you're going to be held accountable to disciple them, to continue to teach them to obey everything. And so some of you here, you lead someone to Jesus and you're discipling them and you want to baptize them. They want you to baptize them. You can baptize them here. The command is for us as followers of Jesus, everyone who is a disciple, to make disciples. And one of the steps in that is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A one-time decision. The next one's a lifelong one. And this is the hardest part of the Great Commission teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And it's not just because there's so many things that he's commanded. We talked about that in the Red Letter series. We could just talk about this one thing here in this passage. And it's not because he says teaching, and some people don't have the gift of teaching. I understand that. It's not talking about, by the way, there's not an easy out of just if you just live this out. He's not talking about teaching by example. He is actually talking about instructing people. But everybody here can teach to some level. You might not have the gift of teaching, but some people don't have the gift of mercy. I don't think I have the gift of mercy... It doesn't mean I can just be a jerk. I have to be merciful. Some of you don't have the gift of giving. Some people are just blessed with giving. They're constantly looking for opportunities to give and how they can give stuff away and then God keeps giving them more stuff. And, and some people, it, but it doesn't mean we don't, we don't give at all. If you don't have the gift of giving, everybody's commanded to give. Some people have the gift of evangelism. Other people they don't, but we're all supposed to tell the good news. We don't all have the gift of teaching, but we're all supposed to teach. And we can all instruct people on how to do things. You've taught people... Uh, if you're a parent, you taught your kids, you've potty trained them. If you've you know, taught them how to brush their teeth, you've taught people how to do a job. If you've ever had someone train alongside of you, you've taught people how to do stuff. We're supposed to teach people how to follow Jesus. That's not the hard part. Look at the passage. I can give you information today. How in the world could God hold me accountable for this? Teach them to obey. How can I be held accountable for your obedience? How can you be held accountable for the obedience of the people you'll teach? That's not, that's not fair, God. Like, how do you get someone to obey something? You can control the content you're giving them. You can't control their actions and how to do it. I can't even do that with my kids. I've got leverage with my kids, by the way. I feed them. I shelter them. I can manipulate them, okay? Discipline, rewards. Like, there's all kinds of things that we could do. The kids, I still can't force them, other than actually grabbing their arms and making them do stuff. I can't make them do stuff. So this week in our, our house, what we focused on has been making your bed. I'm trying to get all four of my girls to make your bed in the morning before you come to breakfast. You're to make your bed. And I took it seriously. And I wasn't even doing it because of this passage. I was just tired of them not making their beds. And so what I ended up doing is I, I, I told them, I said, at dinner one night, I think it was Tuesday night this week, I said, no one's going to talk, which that's like a miracle in and of itself at our meal. I said, no one's going to talk, and I'm going to have us watch a YouTube video. And the video, uh, I've mentioned this speech before. The video was of a guy giving a speech. He was a, a Navy SEAL for 37 years was given a speech to the college that he graduated from, University of Texas in Austin. He was talking to 8,000 graduates, and he was talking about what it was like to be a SEAL. And he talked about his six months of training that he went through to be a Navy SEAL, and that's all terrible. Like, the whole thing was terrible that he talked about. And then he said he wanted to give them 10 principles on how to change the world. First principle was, if you want to change the world, make your bed. And I told the kids, I said, all we got to do is the first principle. We're not going to talk about the other nine. So you get that first principle. And he gave this speech. He talked about how it seemed ridiculous to him that they were teaching them about how to make their bed. And he wanted to go and be a warrior. But then he talked about how important it is to make your bed. 
How if you, you get out of bed and you've made your bed, you've accomplished something for the day. So no matter what else happens, you at least accomplished one task for the day. And if you have a terrible day all throughout the day, when you come back, at least you come back to a made bed and you made it. And so he's given this inspiring speech. And isn't he? But his, his statement was, if you want to change the world, make your bed. I closed the computer laptop up. No one had talked at our table. And I started a chant. The chant was, I would say the phrase, if you want to change the world, and the girls would all yell back, make your bed. And we were pumped. They were inspired. It's like, go and change the world kind of dinner, okay? Problem was, next morning. <laughs> next morning at breakfast, they're all there. I hadn't been to their rooms yet. So I said, you want to change the world? They're enthusiastic. Make your bed. Went to their rooms. All their beds weren't made. They knew the information. That wasn't the problem. The guy did a great job teaching. It inspired them. I try and reinforce it. We did all this stuff. Teaching, teaching, teaching. But they didn't obey. They didn't do it. Then, yesterday, um, uh, working on the message, of taking the things that we're going to cut out of the message, and what, what do I emphasize, and all that kind of stuff on Saturday. And uh, I'm upstairs, and I chant to the girls. If you want to change the world, and then one of them, our, our second oldest, Ava, she says it the loudest. She goes, make your bed. And I go into a room and her bed's not made. And I go downstairs. She's sitting there watching a cartoon with a piece of toast on her stomach. I just, <laughs> make your bed. Your bed isn't made. And I said, that's just like us as Christians, isn't it? Oh, we can say this stuff back and we memorize it and we'll study it and we know all these things, but do we do it? Do you know what the test of discipleship is that Jesus says in the Gospels? John chapter 8, verse 31. It's in your small group study. You can dive into it more. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Not if you can repeat my teaching. Not if you memorize my teaching in multiple translations. If you do it, which is interesting when I think about us as a community. And coming here, kind of like a missionary, I didn't know the community, started to study this community. And, and we are our people, as far as the Christians are concerned, we love the word. And maybe it's because of the anemic amount of word that was given for a period of time when Southeastern Seminary was arguing about whether the Bible was God's word or not. But then there are people that are teaching the word, multiple churches teaching the word. And you'll hear people say, I love my church because they teach the word. I get fed at my church. And people love their Bible studies. And there's all kinds of different Bible studies around the community. And they love their Bible studies. And it made me think about... If you're a sports fan, you know what I'm talking about. It made me think about uh, an interview that was done by an athlete in 2002, about 13 years ago now. His name's Allen Iverson. If I say that name, you already know what interview, right? Like, it's his legacy. For those of you who know who Allen Iverson is, Allen Iverson was a great NBA player. He would sacrifice his body on a nightly basis, throw himself around. He was a small NBA player. They said he was six foot tall. He probably wasn't six foot tall, probably like 5'10", 5'11", pretty skinny guy. And he's playing against all these dudes that are huge. Probably one of the best small men scorers in NBA history. And uh, they got eliminated from the playoffs. And a couple days later, he was doing an interview, just kind of the end of the season interview. And his coach, Larry Brown's a pretty tough coach. You guys know him if you're familiar with UNC basketball. Um, disciplinarian, and um, he had told the media that he, that Alan didn't practice hard all year, didn't go to all the practices. And so he got asked about practices, and uh, Alan Iverson said, practice? Practice? We're talking about practice, man? Not the game, not the game, not the game. Watch the interview. We're talking about practice. And then he goes on, he says, not the game I would die for, but Practice. And then he says about 30 times throughout the interview, practice, practice. 
I know, it bothers me too. The people are still laughing at him and he starts laughing. Practice. What is practice? Practice of preparation and training for actually doing. And we are so fascinated. As a Christian community, with training, there is a place for training. We're doing some of it now. So I'm not bashing training. But if all you do is practice and you never play the game, what are we talking about? Practice? We want to spend all of our time as Christians talking about how we should practice, how we should train. Do we do? Do we ever get in the game? The question of this guy, he was the league MVP. He gave his life for this. Saying, but are you doing the right kind of training? Makes me think of a Roosevelt quote Pity the man who critiques and sits in the stands, those who are bleeding in the Coliseum. Do we do? Do we get in the game? And see, this changes the way that we talk about evangelism. Sometimes people want to pit evangelism and discipleship like they're against each other. That is a, an American concept. In the Bible, they are one in the same. No, I don't think there is actually a person out there that is for just getting people to make a, to pray a prayer or to make a decision. We talk about, do we make disciples, not decisions? Well, that sounds catchy for a bumper sticker. It's not biblical. Because evangelism, the kind of evangelism we try to model at this church, the kind of evangelism we see in the Bible, is that someone, that's the first step of what Lord willing will be many. That woman who trusted Christ last week and everyone who trusts Christ, that's the first step of faith. Like when we study the book of Philippians together as a church. He who began a good work in you. That is the starting line. He will be faithful to complete it. That's the first step of faith. If you haven't taken that step of faith, none of this other stuff matters. You've got to trust Christ. But if you've taken that step of faith, then it's every other step. There's many steps of faith after that. And the journey of making disciples and then the steps of faith are steps of obedience. So obedience matters. We are saved by grace through faith, and it is only by grace, and it is only by believing. But faith without works is dead. That's not real faith. You see it lived out. It's the kind of evangelism that we have. It's not just to get someone to raise their hand or make a decision, but to be a disciple that will then go and reproduce and make disciples. The goal of parenting is not to have a child. Amazing miracle when birth takes place. Hard work for half of the couple, by the way. And then what the goal is, is to get that child to become independent from their parents and dependent upon God. The goal in making disciples is you you teach them and you train them and they become independent from you as their teacher and dependent upon their savior. It's a process, and it takes a long time, and it's really messy. The way that it takes place is by people that get serious about going and baptizing and teaching. And so when your master comes back to call you to account, will you say, look what, look at all the Bible studies I went to. Look at all the training that I did. I held on to my talent. Or will you show them what you've done? Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, we would be people that wouldn't just know messages or know verses that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And I pray, and I think that there might be someone here that doesn't know you. I pray they wouldn't just start trying to obey in their own strength, but they would trust your son, Jesus, the one who has all authority, the one who has all power. I pray they'd surrender their life to him. And I pray for those who have, and they've begun the walk with you, the walk of faith, that you'd spur us on to love, that you'd spur us on to good deeds, that you'd spur us on to a relationship with you that's so deep that we have to talk about it, that we would naturally go. And as we're going, we would make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, and that you would produce a work 
It's impossible. We can't make someone obey. But we know the one who can, your son Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth and enables us to be able to fulfill the command, can enable them to obey the commands that we would trust and grow deeper in trust with him. And that he would go with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll conclude today with one word. Go. Go.